Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to Acts chapter 13, the passage we read together earlier. It's kind of uh, coincidental that we should be working our way through the book of Samuel in the morning and have now come to focus then on the character and life of King David. And in our evening series, to find ourselves as we do this evening in this section here in Acts chapter 13. And for this all to coincide again with this being uh, Palm Sunday when, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, we're told in Matthew's account, the crowds spread their cloaks before him and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Perhaps no other figure in the Bible outside of Jesus Christ is as significant in the outworking of God's plan of redemption as the person of David, the king of Israel. We know how significant David is to the Jewish people, and we know this not just for, because of what we see uh, in terms of their response to him today in the contemporary world, but because of what we read of David in, their, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but also of what we know of David in our own scripture, the Christian scriptures. Uh, when God had removed uh, Saul from his office as king, Paul argues here, verse 22, that God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of that man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. You see the connection between David and Jesus. David is the progenitor of David. David is great David's greater son. And this testimony that Paul gives in verses 22 and 23 is interesting because what he's done is he's brought various expressions together in this one, in this one quotation from the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes from Psalm 89, which says, I have found David, my servant. He quotes from 1 Samuel 13, 14, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader. And again from Isaiah chapter 44, when he says of King Cyrus of Persia, He is my shepherd, that is, he is my king, and will accomplish, he will do all that I please. And in those quotations which Paul brings together, what he's saying is that David and Cyrus, as figures in the Old Testament, uh, Cyrus who supported the rebuilding of the temple, David who planned the building of the temple, behaved as true kings because they did the will of God, the will of the great king. Neither of them was perfect. One of them was actually a total unbeliever. But both of them fulfilled their role as kings because they did the will of the great king. Their obedience was relative, but in their office as king, their relative obedience pointed towards the perfect obedience of the one true king, towards whom David is pointing all the time, this Savior Jesus. This is Paul's argument in the heart of this sermon that we are studying of his. Uh, arranging, scripture, embracing, proclamation of the gospel. The key words, you can find them in verse 32, are the words good news. We bring you the good news. The good news of what God promised 
to the fathers. Good news. This is the word gospel. And the apostle is doing three things with this word gospel. He anchors the gospel. He announces the gospel. And then he applies the gospel to those to whom he is speaking. Well, he anchors the gospel. You can see that already in what I've said. He anchors the gospel in the witness of the Scripture to David. Having introduced him as the Savior Jesus in verse 23. He links Jesus to his uh, descent from David. He is the one of whom David spoke. He is the one of whom the prophets spoke. The, the, the branch that would come from the line of Jesse, David's father, is none other than this Savior Jesus. The boy who would be born of David's line, the boy on whom divine titles would rest, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, is none other than this Savior Jesus. He roots, he anchors the uh, gospel in biblical revelation. And in verse 26, he takes us even further back. He takes us right back to the first clear announcement of the gospel. I'm not thinking so much of the announcement to Adam and Eve in the garden, though that is certainly the first announcement of the gospel, but the clarification of that announcement that takes place under Abraham. Brothers, he says in verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He's announced the Savior, Jesus. Now he announces the message of this salvation. Salvation that was announced to Abraham when the promise was made to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that seed is Christ, the New Testament tells us. So he summarized, and we looked at this last time, so I'm not going to go over the ground again. He summarizes the, the call of Abraham right through to the redemption of the Jews out of their captivity in Egypt and their being brought into the promised land. And he brings them right up to the story of the great John the Baptizer who comes at the end of verses 24-25 and prepares the way for the arrival of this key figure, the Savior Jesus. But David, David is the other figure in the Bible that prepares our minds for the arrival of God's Messiah. So here's, here's him rooting it in biblical revelation. To us has been sent the message of this salvation, clearly articulated in the Old Testament Scriptures, and now it has come to you and to your ears. And he anchors it not only in biblical revelation, he anchors the gospel in recent history. You notice he does this as he goes on to speak about those who live in Jerusalem right now, and their rulers right now, because they did not recognize Him, that is, the Savior Jesus, or understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. What he's charging here as he, as he brings them down to the present moment is this. He places this gospel message in its current history, the recent history of the people of the Jews. And he says several things as he as he announces this, he says, first of all, that Jesus' condemnation was culpable. Jesus was condemned, and that verdict was motivated, he says, by culpable ignorance. Do you, do you see what he says? 
they fulfilled these scriptures by condemning him, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. Their condemnation was culpable. It was culpable because they were ignoring the scriptures. You see what he says about the scriptures. They did not recognize him or understand, literally, they did not understand the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. There's a little thing there that I want you to pause and understand that whenever the word of God is preached, the voices of the prophets are being heard. Wherever the word of God is spoken today by a living voice, so in that living voice God is speaking by His word today. It is a relevant word. You are hearing the word of God tonight as the word of God is read in your hearing and as that word is being proclaimed to you. Wherever God's word is taught, God's voice is heard. You did not understand the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. He says, they were ignoring this revelation. Uh, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul will say to the Corinthians that the leaders of this age, the rulers of this age, including the religious leaders of this age, did not understand what they were doing or they would have recognized the Messiah and they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus' condemnation was culpable, culpable ignorance. Jesus' condemnation was undeserved. He makes that clear, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death. What is the apostle doing here? He's referring them back to Pilate's verdict. Do you remember where Pilate said he'd committed no crime worthy of death? He said that to the people. He brings Jesus out. He's uh, had him punched and kicked in a, a bit. That he's bloodied and bowed. But nonetheless, Pilate says, I've done, I've done this man up. I've had my soldiers rough him up a little bit. But he's done nothing worthy of death. I find nothing. Nothing in what he says, nothing in his character, no flaw in his personality, no skeleton in his cupboard, nothing that I can bring before you and say this man has done anything worthy of death. They knew this. They knew this. And not only was it a miscarriage of justice directed against one who is innocent of a capital offense, but do you notice how Paul says that this was carried out against the Lord's Holy One, later on in the passage, this Holy One uh, that God has appointed. Jesus' condemnation was culpable. Jesus' condemnation was undeserved and Jesus' condemnation fulfilled Scripture. For although His accusers and condemners acted of their own will and for their own purposes and of their own volition, nonetheless they were fulfilling God's promises through the prophets. Do you see how he refers to that which was written of him? Only when all that was written about his suffering was fulfilled was he taken down from the tree. Uh, Paul refers to the tree here to describe the cross as the place of the curse. Here is the Messiah Jesus and he is literally put out of the promised land. He's no longer on the promised land. He's lifted up off the promised land pinned to the cross that is the place of the curse. He is excluded from his own place and from his own people and is excluded from the presence of God in the place of the curse. A curse that was rightfully ours, a death that was rightfully ours, a, a punishment and banishment from the presence of God that was rightfully ours. 
He endures it. He endures it in our place. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He's anchoring the gospel in events that have happened, true history that happened in their time to this Savior Jesus, of which David spoke and Abraham spoke, who came to accomplish that which Moses had accomplished on a larger scale, this great exodus. Luke has already talked about this earlier in the first part of his work. He anchors the gospel. Then the second thing he does is he announces the gospel. But the question then is raised, well, will God let the verdict of humanity on Jesus, will God let it stand? Will he let the verdict stand? And he goes on to say this. Do you notice? God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses, his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. By raising Jesus. This is the good news, you see. God has justified Jesus. The court condemns him. God justifies him. I think that's a better word than the word vindicated. I think it, it clarifies really what is happening in the resurrection of Jesus. God is justifying Jesus. Not just vindicating him. But he's actually declaring him to be absolutely innocent. You want God's verdict on the character of Jesus Christ, you look at the empty tomb. You want God's verdict on what he thinks of Jesus, you look at the empty tomb. Here is God saying to the world, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There is nothing in his character, no flaw in his makeup, nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ that deserves the treatment that he has received. God, God steps in in this situation and God raises him from the dead as if to say, my servant is justified in my eyes. And I want him to be justified in your eyes so that you'll recognize who he is and what he has accomplished. This, he says, is good news. Now, I want you to look at this word gospel because this word gospel is used a, whole way, a lot of different ways today. There are people that say to you, well, we need to live the gospel or we need to be the gospel. We need to be the gospel to people in their need or be the gospel to people in their poverty or be the gospel to people in their rebellion. We need to be the gospel. Do you know there is nothing in all the world that is so ridiculously insane as that kind of language. It's unbiblical and it is absolutely impossible. You cannot be the gospel unless you're prepared, or unless first of all you're sinless, secondly you're a God-man, and thirdly you are prepared to be crucified, dead and buried and raised from the dead. That Unless you're prepared to do any of those things or can do any of those things, you can't be the gospel to anybody. Period. Full stop. End of sentence. Over and done with. I don't know the language you use here when you say those things. So I just throw them all in just to, so you get the message. The gospel is news. It is news. It's an announcement of something. It is good news. What do you do with news? You tell it. You say it. You have to say it. You can't say it speechless. You don't turn on the news programs in the morning to find out what's going on in this race to find somebody for the GOP. 
Uh, you don't turn on the news, or if you're not interested in something else then, uh, you don't turn on the news in the morning just to sit and watch these people sitting demurely looking at the cameras and saying nothing. And then they might want to say, well, we're just being the news. You know, the girl in the middle, girl in the middle with a short skirt and makeup. She's being the news. The two guys on either side that are there just as props, <laughs> uh, they're just being the news. It's ridiculous. How can they be the news? You cannot be the news. You have to say the news. The news has to be spoken. It has to be declared, announced to people. And that is precisely what the apostle is doing here. He's saying to these people, this is the good news. This, we bring you good news. What is the good news? What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. By raising Jesus. There is an objective content to be reported to people. So when Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, what he's saying to people is, the king has come. The king has walked onto the pages of history. He has come into the story. He has now arrived, and he's here. And to prove it, he's here. Here are the signs and wonders and miracles that demonstrate that he's here. The king has come. God has raised him from the dead. Now Paul and Barnabas are bringing to the nations this good news of God's promises fulfilled. Do you see how he describes them as pro a gospel which was promised to the Father? In other words, fathers, in other words, it's a fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, the prophecies, the types, the shadows written in those scriptures. And he goes on to quote. He quotes from Psalm 2, uh, and which begins, you remember, by describing the rebellious, murderous hearts of powerful people in the world. It says this in Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage? The people plot in vain. The kings set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, against His anointed. He describes the collective antagonism of the world system against God and against God's Son. And you remember God's reaction there in the second Psalm. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord has them in derision. But that isn't all the Lord does. He doesn't just hold them in derision. He holds out a message to this fallen, rebellious world. He says, as for me, you, you, may, you may plot, plan, you may, you may connive and counsel together in your fury against the Lord and against His anointed, but says the Lord and His anointed, what I've done is this. Here's my message to the world. While you're doing your plotting and planning and, and, and counseling together, all in vain, this is what I've been doing. This is what I've been doing, says God. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the king, he says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Throughout the whole of Christ's public ministry, God was constantly opening up heaven and saying something about him. You remember at his baptism? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. On the mountain of transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Hear him. In John chapter 12, Now is my soul troubled, said Jesus. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. But nowhere, nowhere does God's voice sound more powerfully than when he raises Jesus from the dead. 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's as if at that moment he has declared. Well, in fact, this is what Paul will say when he's writing to the Romans. He has declared to be the Son of God as the God-man in his incarnation and as the Savior of his people. He has declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection, he's now seated on David's throne. David's throne, the throne of David. He's begotten metaphorically uh, by his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation and his being seated now on the throne of David. And then Paul goes on, having rooted it there in, in Psalm 2, he goes on then to stress the difference between Jesus and David. You notice what he says in verses 34. And following us for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, and he quotes, I will give to you the, sh the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, he will not let his holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. He brings together two scriptures there. Psalm 16, Isaiah, Isaiah 55, and he uses both to interpret each other, both of them linked together by the language of to give and holy. And he brings these scriptures together and he says this, God who has been so generous, that's been the theme of the first part of the sermon that we saw last time. God has been so generous in the past to Israel, has now been generous, super generous in this day and age because he has given us the faithful blessings he promised to David. He's keeping the promise. He's keeping the promise he made in Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. David died. David was buried. David's bones are now probably dust. But Jesus has been raised, verse 34, raised. And the language there, he has raised him from the dead, and he's done it for you. It's for you that he's done this. The you is plural for y'all. Or as they say in Glasgow, for yous. For yous. To use the Glasgow dialect, which is so attractive. Uh, not. The blessings that were promised to David are holy because he's the holy one. This is not brand new stuff in, in, in Luke's writing. Remember, this is part two of a two-part work, the Gospel of Luke. Right at the very beginning, you have the announcement made to Mary, and that's on Mary's mind. You see, that's, his name is to be Jesus. He's the Savior Jesus. You'll call his name Jesus. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. So death could not hold the Holy Son of God. Death is the wage of sin. And He is holy, harmless, and undefiled, separated from sinners. And by raising Him from the grave, God secured salvation, granted David's highest hopes to us who believe. The resurrection is absolutely unique so far. 
Yeah, there were resurrections during Jesus' life. He raised people from the dead. Even the apostles raised people from the dead. But the feature of those resurrections were that they were temporary. Those people were going to die, be buried, and would eventually be corrupted. And that would be it. Already, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, four days had passed. He was already stinking. Corruption had set in, but Jesus reversed the corruption, raised him from the dead. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, there was no corruption. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised in a resurrection body that lasts forever. A resurrection body that is the template for your resurrection body and mine. So he announces the gospel. Here's the good news. The good news is God's done this. The good news, it's not good news if you've got to go and do something. It's not good news if you've got to go and live something. If, I, if my message is go and live the gospel, go and do the gospel, go and be the gospel, that's not good news for you, let me tell you, and it's, no good, it's not good news for anybody else. That's bad news. Because you can't do it, and you can't live it, and you can't be it. Only Jesus can be it. Because God raised him from the dead. Well, he moves on to applying the gospel. And he does it in two ways. He does it by, with a word of promise, and with a word of warning. <clears throat> the Nicene Creed says that the unique Son of God, very God of very God, very man of very man, for us and for our salvation, became man, suffered and died, was raised and seated at God's right hand, and will come again in glory. For us and for our salvation. That's why he did it all. That's the purpose behind the incarnation, behind the life of obedience behind the death on the cross and the resurrection and ascension and exaltation for us and for our salvation. And he spells it out. Do you notice in verses 38 and 39? I know I'm going fast. I'm trying to get you out early. Before midnight. <clears throat> Let it be known to you, he says, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I'm going to tell you something here. I don't like this translation here. This extremely sound version, ESV, which is failing us at this very point. Because the word freed there is the word justified. Okay? Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified from everything that would have, you could not have been justified by the law of Moses. That's consistent with Paul's theology, isn't it? Where he uses this language to be justified through him over and over again. This is the irreducible core. This is the essential, irreducible minimum of our confession. Paul says to the Galatians in one of his earlier letters, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we, be, we are believed in, the, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. That's what he's saying here. He's saying what is the, what is the promise of the gospel? I was talking to some students uh, on Friday and I was, we were talking about the mission of the church and, <clears throat> and I was looking at some of the language that's used about the mission 
of the church. And I was saying that a lot of the language that's used about mission today in a lot of the books that are being produced, uh, for example, one book called The Mission of God says that, that it's everything we do. Everything we do is the mission of God. And that's just not right, actually. Uh, one of the greatest missionaries of all time put it like this, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. If everything is mission, nothing is mission. The mission of the church is something the church specifically is given to do. Because all the other things that we do, all our care for the poor, can be done by people who don't believe at all or believe some other religion. They can do that too. And they do do that too. God in His common grace puts it in the heart of people who don't believe anything or who believe the wrong stuff to reach out to the poor and to help the poor. We have to recognize that. But what is the distinctive thing, the one thing that the church can do, that the church has been given to say to men and women, it's this. That through believing in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and justification before God are available to men and women and boys and girls. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a word of promise that he gives to these people, and he gives a word of warning to these people. But the gospel is two-sided. I know it's not recommended today that you just say anything negative at all, and, and uh, <clears throat> you know I like fun. But I also have to be faithful. The Bible has a lot of stuff in it that is not fun. And that to be faithful, we have to say, is actually not concerned with marketing the message at all because here, here the apostle compresses some words from the, from the prophet Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you say it here. I didn't clear it with my thought police before I spoke tonight. Beware, he says, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. And he quotes, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. The prophet was talking about the wonder that the people of his day would see when the Babylonians would come in under Nebuchadnezzar and destroy Jerusalem. People didn't believe that. The prophet said it would happen. People didn't believe it. They couldn't believe that God would do this or allow this to happen to Israel. And now Paul's coming along with a similar message. It's a word from God. It's a word to the people. And he's saying the wonder of our day is that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The Messiah you killed, he raised him from the dead. And, and you're doing to this message what the people back there did to that message. You're not believing it. You're not receiving it. And he leaves them with a warning. Well, as you read the rest of the passage, you find that there were various responses to this message. There were some who begged that uh, the next Sabbath that Paul would come back and tell them more. That's a good response, isn't it? If we had people who were saying to us, well, we want to hear more about this. We'd like you to come back next week and talk more about the things of God. That would be a good response, wouldn't it, to our message. Well, anyway, that's what they did. The next city, they're almost all there. The whole city, almost the whole city is there to hear the word of the Lord. And it was good news. It was gospel. That forgiveness and God's approval could be received simply by believing in Jesus. You'd think everyone would buy into that. We're not asking them to jump, high, you know, jump over hurdles. We're not, we're not putting obstacles in their way. We're just saying, here's the good news. By trusting in Jesus Christ, you get the forgiveness of sins and God's approval. There it is. Isn't that good news? 
All because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what you have to do. Isn't that good news? But apparently it wasn't good news to some of the hearers there, especially some of the Jewish listeners. And so Saul's, uh, Paul's last word to them was this. It was necessary, he says to these people, that the word of God be spoken first to you. It's for the, God, it's for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And here, Saul does something, Paul does something here that is very significant in the storyline of the book of Acts. He says this, having said to these people from, from Israel that they reject the gospel, they've counted themselves unworthy of eternal life, that he's now turning to the Gentiles. Here's how he, how he puts it. He quotes from Isaiah and he says this, For so the Lord has commanded us. Look at the context. It's Israel. It's the servant of the Lord. The Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What Paul is saying to these Jews, there are two kinds of Jews. There are Jews who are externally connected to Abraham by the flesh. And there are Jews who are Jews inwardly, who are children of Abraham because they share Abraham's faith. And what Paul is saying to these people is, we are the true Israel. We're doing what Isaiah the prophet told us to do. We're doing what the Lord commanded. Here he is, he's a Jew himself. He's saying, we're doing what the Lord commanded. We're, he commanded Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. So, if you're rejecting it, that is precisely what we're going to do. We're going to form a new, greater Israel that's composed not just of genetically connected Jews, but of those who have come to know the Jewish Messiah for Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. And that's precisely what we read earlier in, in Luke. Jesus has come to be the glory of his people, Israel. So there's a big division that takes place here. It's a division that, that Jesus points to, I think, when he's giving one of his parables about the wheat and the weeds. And he talks about the wheat and the weeds growing together until the harvest. Here is ancient Israel. Here, these are the people of God. Uh, at that time, the word of God has come to them and they've rejected it. But some within the community, some within the church that is Israel, believe God. They believe God and their sins are forgiven and they're justified of all the things they could not do under the law of Moses. They're in a right relationship with God. They form that kernel of the new Israel. And those of us today who are Gentiles, you and I have been enfolded into that one people of God. We've been brought in from the outside. We were nothing. We were nobody. We had no promises, no genetic background, no history, no genealogy that linked us with the patriarchs and the fathers. We've come from nowhere. We are nowhere, men and women. God has brought us in. He's made us part of this community of faith, the people of God. So that all the promises that were to, for Israel are for us because of our connection by faith with those whom God has called to himself. I want to ask you tonight, do you believe the good news yourself? Do you believe it yourself? You've heard the good news, God raised Jesus from the dead, but do you believe it? Do you believe it for yourself that God has forgiven your sin? Can you say that tonight? God has forgiven my sin. 
God has justified me. I'm acceptable to God. Utterly acceptable to God. Because of what Jesus did. You can be. There are no hoops to jump through. You can do by, by, by trusting the message. Hearing the news. Believing the news. Believe the news. And trust the Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would please write your word on our hearts tonight. We pray that we would come to see the heart, the kernel at the core of the teaching of the apostles as they're going about in the book of Acts and they're setting the tone for the future of the church. Not despising other things that come under the, the category of loving our neighbor and serving the world, but here identifying what it is that Christianity offers to the world that is utterly unique. It offers a Savior, Jesus. I pray that tonight we'd embrace him by faith to your praise and glory. Amen.